And then they started reaching out for the family. This is before my time. I didn't know the family at the time. In fact, we didn't live in that city at the time or go to that church. But I've heard all the stories, and they've been documented even in a book that's been written. And when they finally were able to get my my mother-in-law to come to the church, she actually uh, had demon possession. And there were many demons that were cast out of her. That's the spiritual side of things. And God delivered her completely, totally. She never had to take a medication, go through treatments, be institutionalized again. It was just a miraculous thing. That being said, that's always kind of been a concern. And the enemy, the devil, would play on her mind through the succeeding years, even until her passing last year. My wife last year lost both her father and her mother last year within six months of each other. Last year was a real traumatic year for my wife. And, uh, but but when, when the enemy would come and, and attack her, he would attack her with this past, the past knowledge that she had been institutionalized, that she had been declared to be you know, mentally incompetent, all these different things, all these different diagnoses and what have you. But I saw the side of the spiritual uh, demon possession and how someone can be delivered from demon possession and, and be basically cured of, of that mental illness. That's the one side. On the other side, I'm going to share something here that we've never probably shared in public before, but this is the right venue for it. My father, who was a pastor when I was born, he was a minister. And, uh, but later in his life, I say later, probably not that much later, but probably in his 50s, Uh, My father was diagnosed with a chemical imbalance in his brain, and it resulted in something called bipolar disorder. And we had never personally dealt with that, but my father was dealing with that. And through treatment, through medical treatment, uh, medicine and chemical treatment, he was able to overcome that, control that. And like I said, we've not made this public And so nobody would even have been aware of that because he was treated medically. So I've personally experienced in my family kind of two sides of of this issue, the the spiritual component and the medical medical component. Uh, Ironically enough, I, I just tweeted something out this morning about this conference and being here and being a participant and speaking uh, just late this morning, actually. And I received two personal responses. And, and one of those responses is uh, from a couple that is, is here at this conference as a result. And they're seeking some personal, personal help in this area for a family member. And the second response that I received this morning was from a minister, a licensed minister, longtime minister actually with the United Pentecostal Church International. I'm gonna read his, his text. He said, I saw you were speaking at the Faith and Mental Health Conference, real issues. My daughter has been fighting clinical depression for years. Not sure you saw my repost of her text about it. Prayers appreciated as two days ago, ER took her to a behavior health clinic to balance meds and coping mechanisms, end quote. And so I thought, wow, you know, just with a kind of benign post, hey, I'm going to be at this area, pray for me. And by the way, in my post, I said, uh, I'm out of my comfort zone. <laughs> and so prayers are appreciated. Uh, but I had these two very personal responses of people who are currently dealing with, uh, with this, this issue and have needs in this area in their, in their close, immediate 
family. And, and it helps me realize there is a real need here. And so I appreciate, I don't know all of you, and I don't know why all of you are here or what your you know, profession or ministry or, or what have you is, but, but thank you for being here because it's obvious that there's a growing need in this area. In fact, as I thought about this, I thought, you know, the need is going to be growing even greater because, again, I told you, I'm going to lean on the faith side of things, okay? Uh, I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm just going to, going to let you know that that's, that's the way I'm going to, I'm going to be because that's who I am. But, but as our nation, as America, becomes more and more godless, and as our nation more and more discounts and removes the Word of God, the Bible as being absolute you know, truth, immutable, infallible, then it's going to lend to more and more confusion. And when people are confused, they become vulnerable. They seek and try other things. I was listening to some high-level uh, uh, podcasts and newscasts yesterday uh, regarding uh, Halloween, and, and it was a high-level kind, of kind of an introspective look about how that Halloween is, is growing again back kind of towards its original roots. And the surmising of why that's happening is that people are seeking some kind of spiritual connection. And because they've largely disconnected with, with God and the Bible and, and, and you know, Christianity or, or, or traditional kind of religion, they're, they're looking for something to fill that void. And so they're re-looking at things like witchcraft and whatever. I thought, well, that's an interesting perspective. But, but, but there's no question in my mind that we're going to be dealing with more and more uh, needs in this area as we come closer to the coming of the Lord. I want to give you a couple of verses that I felt the Lord impressed on me that fit this topic in this meeting. Again, my topic is pastoral limitations in mental health counseling. And the first verse is 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23. It says, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. That's W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely. Peace, that you'll have peace in your complete being. And I pray God your whole, there it is again, W-H-O-L-E, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here the scripture is acknowledging that we are multifaceted beings. We are primarily made up of three capacities, as mentioned in this scripture, spirit, soul, and body. These all interplay on one another. I'll make another personal confession. Um, I never personally really bought into stress too much. I just thought, you know, that's just part of life. I mean, if you say, hey, I don't want any stress, you're saying I don't want to live. I mean, you know, I just kind of thought, that's just life. And, and I really thought, I really thought, I never expressed it, but I thought in my heart of hearts, I thought, you know, people are using that as a cop-out and hiding behind that because they don't want to take responsibility and, and whatever. And then six years ago, first time in my life, I found myself as the patient as opposed to the minister visiting the patient. And I'm the one laying in a hospital. I'm the one in the emergency room. I'm the one with the cardiologist saying, you're not going home. We're going to open you up tonight and, and, and do an open heart surgery on you. I'm like, what? You've got to be kidding me. No, not me. Do you realize that this is Friday and Sunday is Easter? It's my biggest Sunday of the year. I can't be in a hospital on Easter Sunday. And I argued with the doctor, and he finally settled the argument by saying, well, you can go, and you can, you can enjoy this Easter Sunday if you want to, but it'll be your last one. I said, well, okay, all right. Well, if that's my only option, then I guess I'm going to miss my first Easter Sunday my whole life. And uh, 
I got a wake-up call. And, and for the first time, I, I had to take, you know, some powerful medicines and what have you because of the trauma done to my, my body. And I've never experienced this personally in my life, but I experienced the interaction of medicines on my body and how it affected me. I'm not a, I'm not a person who loses control of his emotions. I've been this way all my life. I can, I can control my emotions. But I found myself becoming uncontrollable at times. I'm thinking, what's going wrong with me? This is not me. What's, what's happening here? And I just couldn't control myself. And it was the interplay of, of course, body, physical trauma of a surgery and, and the medicine, all that. And, and, and I realized for the first time, there's a thing called stress and it's real. And it really impacts you in mental ways and, and, and physical ways and emotional ways and even spiritual ways. And, and I realized that the first time I came back to the church that I pastor in San Diego, the first time I came back to a service, and it had probably been uh, for sure a month, maybe two months or close to two months, and, and I waited on purpose until everything was going, and I, they, nobody knew I was going to be there, and, and I didn't really want them to know, and, and so I kind of waited till you know, church is going strong, and I kind of slip in a side door and kind of hide up here in a little corner there, and and, uh, and, and nobody noticed me at first, and pretty soon somebody notices I'm there, and, and, and somebody just comes along while people are worshiping. Oh, pastor, it's good to see you. And they were all kind and nice, and they were all saying the right things. Hey, take it easy. Just come back when you're ready to come back. And, and it was all wonderful until, until one good brother, and he's a good brother. He didn't mean anything intentionally to, to be harmful by this, but, but, but it, it was. And, and he came by and he said, oh, pastor, it's good to see you. Take your time, but, but whenever you get to feeling better, I got something really serious I got to talk to you about. And when he said that, it was like a ton of bricks just got dumped on me. I mean, I couldn't breathe. I got I don't get claustrophobic. I'm a certified scuba diver. I'll take off my gear. I'll slip into dark crevices and reach my hand in there and grab that lobster or grab that abalone. And, you know, I, I do that stuff. I've been, I've been in pipes. I, I, and I got claustrophobic. Here I'm in a big building and I've got, I, I got to get out of here. I texted my wife, I'm out of here. I mean, I just left. I couldn't take it. And, and it was like the Lord saying, okay, wake up call for you. That thing called stress is really real. It does impact people. You've coped with it so well, you thought it didn't exist, but, but now you're realizing it does. And, and the scripture says we've got this treasure in earthen vessels, or as one translation says, very fragile vessels. So we are three-part beings, and every part interplays on the other part, spirit, soul, and body. Who can understand all the interplay, but, but it exists. The second verse that I want to share with you is 2 Timothy 1 and 7. 2 Timothy 1 and 7. It says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear. That's stress. That's worry. But of power and of love and of a sound mind. God gives us power, love, and a sound mind. It lets us know this is what he wants us to have. This is who he wants us to be. In Romans 15 and 13, one more verse and I love this one. I'm going to conclude with this one as well. I love this verse. I probably have never used this verse before in, in a major way. <clears throat> but Romans 15, 13. Now the God of hope, and I just capitalized hope in my notes, fill you with all joy. I capitalized joy. And peace. I capitalized peace. In believing. I capitalized that. That you may abound. I capitalized abound. In hope. I capitalized that again. Through the power of the Holy Ghost. Isn't that a great verse? Now the God of hope. The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope 
through the power of the Holy Ghost. Let me summarize these verses and say this. God wants us, each individual, to be complete in him. He wants us to be complete in him. That's the will of God. That's the plan of God. That's the purpose of God for our lives. Now, again, our topic today, my topic is pastoral limitations in mental health counseling. So I'm addressing primarily pastors and clergy, not to say if you're not a pastor or clergy, it won't be beneficial, but that's kind of the focus and target of my, of my uh, topic today. I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Archibald Hart. And if you've never met Dr. Archibald Hart, I highly recommend him. Turns out he's almost exactly my father's age. My father went on to be with the Lord here a few years ago, but Dr. Hart's still living, 87 years old. He is a licensed psychologist. He is professor and former dean of the School of Psychology at Fuller Graduate School of Theology. He is a certified diplomate fellow in psychopharmacology. He's the author of over 30 books. And here's what Dr. Hart said. Now, the reason I gave you all of those credentials is that he's not just talking theory. He's not a novice. He's experienced. He's been practicing over 50 years and uh, probably over 60 years now. And here's what Dr. Archibald Hart said. He said, the number one most stressful job or occupation or profession in the entire world is a pastor's wife. Wow. A pastor's wife. I thought about that. that wow, that's interesting. And I've pondered that. I, I'm, I'm surmising here, but I'm thinking maybe it's because she's privy to much, if not most, of the pastor's you know, pressures and stressors and what have you but she can't do anything about most of them herself. She's not in the position to, to really deal with it. Maybe that's why, I don't know. But he says, number one's a pastor's wife. He said, number two, most stressful job in all the world is to be a pastor. And he said, number three, it's to be the president of the United States of America. Now, when I heard him say that, I thought, that's awesome. You see, I've been a I didn't start out to be a preacher, but God just had these plans for me, and I was in college and pursuing another career path, and my dad prevailed on me to you know, take a break and, from secular study and give one year at a Bible college just to get my weather vein and then set back up. So he, he, he leaned on me to do that, and I kind of had to agree because, look, I've, I've, I've supported you for 20 years. You can do this one thing for me for one year. <laughs> okay, Dad. And so I did. And uh, well, that one year at Bible college turned into two, two turned into three, three turned into four, three, three turned into graduation. I got married my last semester and I never looked back. I, I left Bible college and all of a sudden I was a preacher. I, I left Bible college and preached my first meeting, which was a youth camp and, and, and never looked back. And, and that was uh, my word. That was 40, 40, what? 42 years ago, I think. Yeah, about 42 years ago. And uh, so so I, I, being a, a minister and a pastor, and, and if you, you know, in case you want to know how old I am, I'm 36 years of age, and, and uh, I am. If, if you hold my age up in a mirror, it says 36, and uh, mirrors never lie, they say, you know. So, <laughs> uh, so I, I look back on my, on my life and my, my ministry, and, and now I'm looking towards the future. I'm thinking, okay, how do you retire this thing? How do you, I'm also a licensed pilot, and and, uh, uh, you know, you, you can take off a plane. Pretty much anybody can take off. But how about landing that thing? And, and so here I've taken off. But how do I land this thing? How do I land my life, my career, my, you know, profession? 
And, and I don't know. I don't know how you retire as a pastor preacher. But when I heard Art Hart say this, I thought, I got it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retire so I can run for president of the United States of America. Because they got great retirement benefits. You only got to do it four years, and you're, you're taken care for the rest of your life. It's like, what a plan. What a plan. So that just relieved a lot of pressure and stress about me worrying about my, my future. Of course, that's a joke. But anyway, some people think it's not a joke. I get people coming up to me after me and say, hey, yeah, I'm voting for you. No, I'm not really running for president. Amen. You know, here's another thing that Arch Hart said, Dr. Archibald Hart. Here's another thing he said. He said the clergy, that's ministers, pastors, have the highest burnout rate of any profession. Now, again, he's using statistics. He's not just guessing and speculating. These are his own documented research. And here's what he says. You're going to be blown away by this. He says the clergy have a burnout rate of 70%, 70 percent, seven zero. 70%, 7 out of 10 burnout. Isn't that amazing? Now, when he says burnout, it's not what I think of about when I say burnout and probably not what you think of when you say burnout. When I think of burnout, I think, you know, they need a sabbatical. Uh, they need a break. They need a change in their life. They need, you know. No, when he says burnout, here's what he means. Here's what he means. They have an affair or they get divorced or they have a nervous breakdown <clears throat> or they declare bankruptcy or they turn their back on the ministry. They never, say, I'm never going to be a minister again. So I don't think of that as burnout. I think of that as like flame out, like crash and burn, you know. But, but he calls that burnout 70, 70%. So I've got a little formula. I didn't originate this, but I elaborated on it. So the elaboration is mine. And, um, and here's my little formula for helping you to avoid burnout. And this will work for you whether you're a preacher or not a preacher, okay. Number one, divert daily divert daily. What does that mean? Every day you need one hour of just getaway time. It might only be a getaway in your mind. It might, you know, but, but a getaway, it could be a hobby. Um, anything that's not work related, anything that's not uh, ministry related, stress related. Uh, it could be physical exercise. For me, it's racquetball. Uh, it could be whatever a hobby is. One hour a day. Number two, withdraw weekly. You need one day a week that you're absolutely declaring it's your day of rest. You're not doing any work. You're not doing anything work-related, no stress-related. Um, now, the Bible has a word for that. The Bible calls that Sabbath. And, and, and sad to say, you know, Christian clergymen are probably the worst Sabbath breakers of anybody. Just go, 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 go. And, uh, well, I'm not saying your Sabbath your, has to be on a Saturday, but you need one day. God just designed all of creation this way. Everything needs rest. Everything needs a day of rest, and, and you need to be faithful to that. And number, number three, uh, I've added quarantine quarterly. Quarantine quarterly. Every three months, you need a three-night, minimum three consecutive night getaway with you and your spouse if you're married, without kids. I was counseling a couple one time. This is years ago. I don't do a lot of personal counseling anymore, but I got others that do that, thank God. Thought I was called to that at one time, but now I've been delivered from it. Hallelujah. Okay. But, uh, but I was counseling a couple one time, and, uh, and they were having some marital issues. And so I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to drill down and trying to help them figure out what's, what's gone wrong and how they can correct that. They had three kids. And I think their kids were around, if I remember right, they were around maybe 11, 10, and 8, something like that. And so I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, when's the last time... And, uh, and where'd you go and for how long that you and your wife, you know, wife and husband, when's the last time you two went away without the kids? And they said, never. 
I said, no, no, no. I mean, really, think about this. Okay, maybe it's been so long you can't remember. When's the, they said, never. I said, no, really. They said, never. I said, now, when you say never, do you mean never? Yes. I said, like, from the time you had your, like, 11 years ago, you had your first kid. From the moment that kid was born, you've never spent a night away from your kids? Never. I said, well, we don't need to talk anymore. There's the, there's the first answer right there. You know, I don't know if it's the cure-all, but you got to start right there. you got to get a break from your kids. And, you know, not only do you need a break from your kids, believe it or not, your kids need a break from you too. I mean, you train, 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 train. When you get a break, that's a chance for them to practice what you've been training them to do. That's why when you come back in town and the people return your kids, and they say, these are the best kids we've, they're angels. And you're like, did I get the right kids? Did I leave you with the right kids? Well, no, they, they, they did behave like angels. That's what you've been teaching them to do. But, but, but you're the trainer. They're in boot camp when they're with you. They need to get out there and really practice what you've taught them, you know. And, and uh, so quarantine quarterly, three nights a quarter where you and your spouse are away from kids and, and, and everything. And then number four, abandon annually, abandon annually. That's called a vacation. They, let me spell that for you. V-A-C-A, because I know some of you haven't read this word in a long time. V-A-C-A-T-I-O-N, vacation. That's a vacation. Now, here's what Dr. Arch Hart says, and this is quite, quite interesting. Again, he's the expert. He's the expert. And uh, he said this. He said, for a minister, for a pastor, for a clergyman, you haven't really had a vacation that has restored you the way your annual, abandoned annually needs to do until or unless it spans three consecutive Sundays. Now, I speak at conferences all over the nation and the world, and I'll ask the question, I'll ask it here today. How many of you, all right, here's question number one. How many of you took a vacation in the last 12 months? Raise your hand. If you took a vacation, we're talking a, a real vacation. All right, good. Most of the audience, some of you are not raising your hand. All right. All right, number two question. How many of you took a three-week vacation in the last 12 months? Nobody. Oh, one. Okay, thank you very much. All right. Did your three-week vacation span three Sundays? Were you gone three Sundays? Now, if you're not a pastor preacher, that's not as critical probably, but I'm talking primarily when I want to talk to pastors and, and ministers to span three Sundays. Most conferences I'm at, hundreds, thousands of people can be there, and, and, and no pastor can raise his hand that he's even ever taken three consecutive Sundays. And, and the reason I'm telling you Arch Hart is the one saying this is because I confess I struggle doing that myself. But I'm happy to announce... If I can make it till Monday, this coming Monday, if I can just make it to Monday. Tomorrow I've got to speak at a conference in Ventura, content and character series. Sunday morning I'm back here at this church preaching for Pastor Claiborne. Looking forward to that in this beautiful new facility. Sunday night I'll be back at my church preaching there. Probably the second time I've preached there in the last month and a half. And, uh, and then Monday, if I can make it to Monday... My wife and I are catching a plane at LAX. We're flying to Paris. We've never been to Paris in our life. We're doing Paris Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. We're catching another plane flying to Rome. We're doing Rome Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. And then Monday, we board a cruise ship, a Royal Caribbean, and we're doing a 12-night cruise. Come on now. Amen. And only one place have we ever been. We're going to be two days in Holy Land, and I do tours of Holy Land, so I've been there. But every other stop is a brand new stop for us, Athens and Ephesus and Crete and Cyprus and all these things. So we're so looking forward to that, so I'm working myself to a frazzle, so I feel like I deserve this vacation when I get on it, you know. And, uh, but it's so critical that we do abandon annually. Now, in the late 1980s or early 1990s, I don't want to lose track of my time here, um, as a young pastor, I was trying to be all things to all people. 
and I was trying to be Mr. Pastoral Counselor Extraordinaire, and I think I actually did a pretty good, pretty good job at that, and I felt fulfilled doing that, but that really was taking its toll. And I, and I, came, across, I came across an article in Psychology Today magazine, now, I'm not necessarily advocating for Psychology Today magazine, but, uh, but I thought this article was very, very apropos. And, uh, and here's what this article said. It said 90%, 90% of people who come for counseling simply need someone to listen to them. That's what it said. And it said the other 10% need medical help. That's what the article said. Now, when I read that article, as a young pastor trying to be everything to everybody, it really liberated me. I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm too educated to simply be somebody's listening post. But I'm not so educated to render medical assistance. So I just felt like, hey, that leaves me out of the loop. I'm wonderful. That's good. I feel better. Less stress. No, seriously. The 90%, if that number's accurate, I don't really know that it is, but that's what they said at the time. But let's assume the number's accurate. But if there's 90% needing someone to listen to them, they really do need someone to listen to them. They really do. I'll never forget this experience. I was probably, I was probably uh, maybe 13, 14, something like that. And, um, and, and I was, my mom was, was getting ready, was getting dinner ready. It was a church night a church night. It was a midweek, you know, like a Wednesday night. And uh, my dad was the pastor and, and he'd just come in and he's all, you know, getting ready. And you know how you do, he's got a Bible in one hand and getting dressed with the other hand. And when's dinner ready? And you know, you're just, oh, the whole family's like, gotta get ready, gotta get ready. And my mom, she's rushing around the kitchen. Well, invariably the phone rings. It always rings, seems like at the most inopportune times. And she's too busy to answer the phone, but it just ring, ring, it won't stop ringing, ring, ring. She finally answers the phone. Now this is in the days you know, I don't know if the rest of you are, are old enough to remember, but, but there used to be phones in houses. Really, really, young people, there were phones in houses. Mounted on the walls, mounted on the walls. And, and these phones had these long... Now, in the kitchen, this phone, the receiver, had this long curly cord. It was, probably was about 10 feet long, but it would stretch all around the kitchen. And on that, I can see this scene as if it happened yesterday in my mind. My mom's got this phone you know, propped on her shoulder and she's got a pot stirring this pot and she's taking stuff out of the oven and, and she's talking. But here's how the conversation went. Uh-huh. Oh. Uh-huh. Oh my. And my mom is and this went on for like ten minutes. And and, and finally dinner's ready. Dad's dinner ready. Yeah, yeah, come, come, come. And and she lays the phone down to go put stuff on the table and, and she completely forgot the phone. And I'm watching this scene. I'm just watching this play out, you know. And uh, so we all get to the dinner table, and Dad says, all right, let's, let's pray over our food. And he prays a blessing, and, and we start eating. And, and, and another five minutes or so goes by, and, and my dad notices the phone is not hanging where it's supposed to be hanging. He says, hey, somebody go hang that phone up. Somebody left that phone off. And my mom looked, and she was so horrified. Oh, I forgot. And she went, pick the phone up. Well, I tell you what, we're about to have dinner, so I'll have to continue this conversation later. God bless you. The person on the other end never had a clue that they were just put on the counter for five or ten minutes. Now, we've encountered that before, right? But, but I, I, I'm not making fun of the need. There really is a need. Some people really have a need just to be, just to, you know what I found in a lot of my counseling, I'm talking pastoral counseling, 
is if you let people talk long enough, they not only talk through their problem, they actually come up with the answers. They, they really do. They really do. I, I was, I just, you know, I don't do much counseling, but I answered one just this week and uh, one of my rare ones and a man in the church and, and they're, they're quite, uh, uh, you know, have some means and what have you. And at least I thought they did and, and think they do. And, and uh, so I just really desperate if I could just have, you know, five minutes of your time, if I could just take you to lunch. And so I made time Wednesday to run to lunch with him and and uh, he was telling me, you know, I just, we need some guidance. And so I said, well, here's my checklist. And I went through my checklist, you know, if things are going haywire in my life. And number one, I checked myself. God, is there anything in me I need to change? And, and then after I checked myself, I just kind of go through this little checklist. And, uh, you know, is God first in every area of my life and my personal disciplines? And, and so I kind of finished that. And he says, uh, he says, you know, he says, um, I've always been faithful to God tithing. He said, when I was in college, I started my first business. And he said, uh, it, it, it was a car business. And I just started because I needed a car in college. And I had a friend that was a dealer. And he took me to the auction and let me bid on a car. And I bought the car and drove it nine months and sold it for twice what I paid for it. And I thought, hey, that's a pretty good deal. And I did that a few times. He said, one thing led to another. He said, I ended up with the largest independent car dealership in all the southeast of the United States of America. And uh, he said, I had 30 employees. We did $80 million worth of business. And and, uh, and he's telling me all this stuff. He said, man, I was a great blessing to God and the kingdom of God and my church and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, but then he had an accountant and turned to find out, come to find out the accountant was embezzling money, embezzled three or $4 million. And, and not only that, after they found that out, the accountant had not been paying the payroll taxes. Government came in. I mean, the whole business just like turned upside down overnight. The most successful car dealership in the Southeast became the defunct car dealership. But he was still responsible for all that money. It took him years to pay all that back. And he said, I got a little kind of bitterness in my heart like God I've been doing all this and blessing you and why would you let this happen to me and and he said and he said this is years ago and just now coming through that and and he says you know and as a result of that he said I'm going to confess to you I've not been faithful to God really putting him first and tithe and offering I hadn't even addressed the financial area at all and I said you know what well, there's the answer right there. I mean, I didn't have that on my list. I should have thought of that. I just, I didn't, I just assume you're faithful to God. I didn't know. And I said, well, that's the starting point right there. I mean, he, he talked himself. He already knew what the answer was, I, I'm sure. But he needed that af affirmation from somebody else in his life that cared for him and, you know, would give him good advice and point him in the right in the right direction. So most people just wanting somebody to talk to them, but they're going to, they know the answer. They're going to get themselves to the answer most, most of the time. Now, so I, I changed the course of my ministry and, and realized, you know, I can't be all things to all people. And uh, I came across the uh, Pareto Principle. Have any of you ever heard of the Pareto Principle? Okay. Well, that's good. So you're going to hear about the Pareto Principle today for the first time. Uh, this is named after an esteemed Italian economist named Wilfredo Pareto. And uh, long story short, he was commissioned to do this big study. And, he, and it had to do with agriculture and, and the economy and business and what have you for a nation. And, uh, and he came across this, uh, after the study, he came across this formula, and, he, and, and it's used in business by a lot of people. It's called the Pareto Principle, called the 80-20 Principle. And, and here's what it says. It says that 80% of consequences come from 20% of the causes. So in other words, 20% of your time, energy, resources are actually resulting in 80% of the product of your life. And that's great. Wow, 20% gives me an 80% return. Well, that's, if that's true, but think about the converse. That means 80% of what I'm spending time, talent, treasure on is only giving me 20% return. So what Mr. Pareto said is we need to realize that, identify that, and, 
and, and do more of what gives us the more return and less of what doesn't give us the more return. Now, I've taken that model and I kind of adapted it myself. And, and I, instead of going a 20-80, I've gone 20-60-20. And I apply that to church. That's my primary focus. I apply that to church. And I'm speaking at pastors' conferences all over and I ask them this question. I say, is it true in your church that 20% of the people contribute 80% of the finances? Yeah, that's true. Is it true that in your church that 20% of the people, you know, win 80% of other people to your church? You know, 80, so, yeah. I mean, you can just go right down the line. It's, it's going to be true. It, that's just kind of a human nature kind of thing. And then I ask the pastors this. I say, okay. I said, take out a piece of paper and write down real quick, write down the top 20% in your church. They don't have to call the office and say, hey, can you check records? They know who it is. They know who the committed people are. They can write that list down. And then I'll ask them this question. How much time have you spent? Put a number beside each name. How much time have you spent with each one of those people in that top 20% in the last month? Some of them don't have any time at all. I'm talking about personal time. Do you spend personal time with anybody in your church? Yeah. Well, who have you spent the time with in the last week? The last, and they'll write those names down. Where are those people? Invariably, they're at the bottom of the list. They're takers, not givers. Now, again, I already said people, even 90% that need someone to listen to, they really have that genuine need. But the point is that a pastor, a leader can't do it all. He can't be to all things to all people. So here's a principle that I've learned about this. Whichever area you focus on, that area is going to grow. And everybody's going to have losses in your life. Whichever group you focus on, that area is going to grow. And the other area is going to have losses. So if you're focusing on the bottom 20%, that area is going to grow, but you're going to have losses from the top 20%. But if you'll focus on the top 20%, you can equip them. Here's my model. Focus on the top 20%, equip them to meet the needs of the 60%, equip them to meet the needs of the lower 20%. Everybody's having their needs met. You don't have to have a college degree just to be a listening post for somebody. There's a real need to be listened to, but it doesn't have to be you that's doing all the listening. Am I making sense here? Okay. So what gets rewarded is what you focus on. If your focus is on the top, your losses are from the bottom. If your focus is on the bottom, your losses are from the top. Here's another principle that I've gleaned from this, and we put into practice in the local church. Meet needs at the point of the need. Meet needs at the point of the need. So someone comes in, you've got to train the people in the church this way. Somebody comes in, they say, you know, does your church uh, 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 give meals? Well, actually, our church, when I drove past my church on the way here, we've got 600 people at our church right now, right this moment. And uh, they're receiving food. The first Friday of every month, we distribute 20 to 30 tons of food. And yeah, yeah, we come down Friday, we'll load you up. We'll load your car up with free groceries. We, we do that. But, but the point is, if somebody comes and says, hey, can you buy, does your church buy meals? Well, you're the church. Meet the need at the point of the need. If you can buy a meal, say, our church does. Tell you what, I'll buy you a hamburger after church. But if you can't buy me a hamburger, say, you know, our church isn't able to do that tonight. You don't have to send them to the pastor. Hey, go, go ask the pastor. It, it violates another principle. All these are independent leadership lessons I'm just kind of throwing at you right now. Called the Jethro leadership principle. In Exodus chapter 18, where Jethro, that's Moses' father-in-law, and that's, by the way, how we know Moses is the meekest man in the Bible, which the Bible declares he is, meekest of all men. How do we know that? Because he hearkened to his father-in-law. When you can hearken to your father-in-law, that means you are meek. Okay. And Moses did. All right. 
and, uh, and Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, came and said, hey, you know, what you're doing is not good. You're going to wear yourself. You're going to burn out. He, used the, he didn't use the very word, but the, he said you're going to wear out. Same, same thing. He said you're going to wear out. But, but he gave him a plan, and his plan was you need to divide leadership. And, and so he, he did. So he pointed leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Shared the burden, shared the load. Now, the leader of a thousand wasn't really responsible for personally meeting a thousand people's needs. Nobody can do that. But he was probably responsible for meeting 10 leaders of a hundred. And the leader of a hundred was probably responsible for meeting 10 leaders of tens. And the leaders of fifties was probably responsible for leading five leaders of, of tens. Or some, something like that. The, the point being that no one leader was personally responsible for meeting 10 people's personal needs at a time. And I found that leading, and, I, and I'm, I'm in a lot of different leadership capacities and, and what have you. And I found that my sweet zone is probably five or six. Probably five or six. We just had a meeting. I had a board meeting here just a few days ago. Called it a high-level meeting in our district. And uh, on, on, our board, on our district board, we have eight. And if I call all the district leaders together, which we've done that a few times, that's probably, I don't even know, probably 20 people or more. And, uh, but we only had about five in this meeting. We got so much done so quickly <laughs> with five people. That's just kind of like a sweet zone, you know, a sweet zone. And so don't try to be all things to all people, but share the load, share the responsibility, build a leadership, build a leadership team. And then Moses, real quickly, uh, Jethro gave Moses some leadership qualifications in Exodus 18, 21. He said, provide out of the people leaders who are, number one, able men. Find people who are able. You do know what the greatest ability is, right? Availability. The greatest ability is availability. Somebody can all, have all the talent in the world, but they're not available. It's not going to do us any good, is it? So find someone that's available. They're able and they're available. Number two, that fear God. They got to keep God first in their life. Keep God first in their life. Number three, men of truth. They got to be honest, honest people. And number four, they got to hate covetousness. What is covetousness? It's desiring what someone else has, desiring that for yourself. And, and the crucial fatal flaw in leadership is desiring someone else's leadership, desiring someone else's position. And, and so he said, hating covetousness. And then place them over, make them leaders, rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens. And he said in Exodus 18, 22, let them judge the people at all seasons. So it's a permanent solution, not a temporary fix. And it shall be, look at this, every great matter they'll bring unto you. The leaders will bring every great matter, but every small matter they shall judge. So shall it be easier for thyself and they'll bear the burden with thee. So we know the Bible is not against making things easier as long as it's making things more effective. And it was going to be more effective. Now notice here it says, every great matter they'll bring to you. Every small matter they'll judge themselves. How do you know the difference between a small matter and a great matter? Well, it's a small matter. If I got the answer for it and I got the solution, it's a small matter. If I don't have the answer, that makes it a great matter. And notice they didn't send the people back to Moses. They, the leaders, would come to Moses and say, hey, I don't have the answer for this one. It gives Moses the opportunity to say, well, here's the answer. Take the answer. Or it gives him the opportunity to say, well, I'll meet with him personally. But it becomes his, his call at that point. They're not making the call. So we implemented that process in our church and our leadership structures. And, and it's, created, it's created wonderful, wonderful uh, results. Now, how does that relate to us? We're talking about mental health and faith. And I'm talking about the limitations of pastors when it comes to helping folks that need help with, with mental health. Here, here's, here's how this all boils down. 
if you know the biblical answer and spiritual answer for someone, and that's the resolution, then give it to them. You can solve that spiritually. But if you don't know the biblical answer or spiritual answer for someone, then probably it's a medical issue, and they need to be referred to somebody that's professional in that expertise. Okay? If someone comes to me and they've got a, I just talked about I had an open heart issue. When, I, when, I, when the doctor said, hey, we're going to have to operate on your heart. I didn't say, well, let me call my preacher. I'm going to have him do that. No. <laughs> I'm a preacher. I'm not operating on anybody's heart. Now I actually do, but not in that way, okay? <laughs> I'm not going to do a physical heart surgery on you. I'll do a spiritual one, but not a physical one. So we got to identify the difference, and it's a challenge. It, it, this is, I don't think, easy. This is probably why, partly why this conference is taking place and why it's called Faith and Mental Health. It's a little challenge to sometimes discern, you know, where one ends and the other one begins, but that's what we've got to figure out. And I certainly don't come here with all the answers. I told you at the outset that uh, uh, I don't feel qualified, okay, uh, and that's why I'll lean more on the faith side. But the point being is we got to realize our limitations. So as a young pastor, I had to come to the realization I can't be all things to all people. I, I just can't do it. I've got to bring others alongside that have giftings I don't have, abilities I don't have, resources I don't have, time I don't have, expertise, experience even that I don't have. I probably did something maybe no young pastor does. When I went to, look to hire assistants, I hired older ones, not younger ones. Most people hire younger ones. I hired an assistant pastor that was 10 years older than me. And uh, I didn't, it wasn't because he was 10 years old, it just turned out. But, but having that assistant pastor for 30 years, I forcibly retired him here a couple of years ago. He was still ready to keep going at 70-something years old. I said, no, no, time to take a break now. And, uh, but, but, but in doing that, that was pretty awesome that I had somebody older than me that, that was my, my assistant. And they'd been around longer and, and they had knowledge in some areas that I didn't have. It was a wonderful thing. And there was never a threat to my position. Because he's the older one. Usually if there's a threat, you think it's coming from somebody younger, right? <clears throat> no threat at all. So there's a method to some of this madness. Okay. <clears throat> so if, if you can't solve it with a scripture, if you can't solve it uh, with, with a spiritual answer, prayerful answer, then you probably need to, you probably need to refer that to someone for medical, medical assistance. Uh, if you're taking notes, Acts, Acts 2, jot this down. Acts 2, verses 2 and 3 is the New Testament model of the Old Testament model I gave you, Jethro's leadership principle. This is where the apostles chose out 12 to wait on tables so they could minister in the word of God. And they said, here's the qualification. Number one, honest report. That's, that was on the Old Testament list. Number two, full of the Holy Ghost. Number three, full of wisdom. And number four, that we can appoint over this business. In other words, they have to have the abilities, the abilities to do it. Now, I think probably for me as a pastor and, and those that are clergy and, and, and faith-based, again, I don't have all these answers. I'm just exploring. If we got a few minutes left, I'll open up for question answers and maybe I can learn from your questions and all of this too, okay. But uh, how do we discern the difference between demonic oppression possession and a mental illness? To me, that's a challenging question. That's a challenging question. The mind is so mysterious. Uh, I don't think anybody's got that all figured out. And I read you a couple of verses about how the scriptures talk about, you know, sound mind and, and it talks about our mind. The battle really today, the battle is largely in the mind. It really is for all of us, for all of us. And uh, for me as a, as a pastor, for me as a disciple, as a, as a Christian, uh, 
for me, I've got to keep my biblical paradigm by staying in the word of God, by making the Bible part of my daily routine, daily routine, making prayer part of my daily routine, constantly, every day, reaching outside myself, saying, God, I need you. I need your guidance. I need your help. I need your wisdom. I need your revelation. And, and knowing the scriptures, because I've given myself to the scriptures for most of my life, it's a beautiful blessing and benefit. And most of the time, when I'm hearing about any issue, any problem, whatever it is, a scripture will come to my mind, and it just fits that situation. The only reason that can happen is that I've given myself to studying the Word of God, memorizing portions of the Word of God, familiarizing myself with the Word of God. Today, we've got so many wonderful tools to assist in this area. Wonderful tools. And you can be driving down a busy freeway and be listening to the Bible and just filling your mind with, you know, Scripture and, and, and verses and truth and what have you. And uh, so let me give you a couple of scriptures that deal with this issue of how to discern between demon oppression, possession, and mental illness. Um, what time is this session supposed to end? I, I don't want to go over our time here. Oh, four o'clock. Okay. All right. Thank you. And I want to try to my best to leave a few minutes at the end for question and answer if I can. So let me give you two verses here. First Corinthians 2.14. First Corinthians 2.14. It says, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So let me say this carefully. I, I want to be careful in what I say. Just as I will not presume <laughs> to know how to treat things medically, okay? If you come to me with an issue or problem and, and we can determine it's a medical issue, I'm not going to go any further. I'm not going to say, well, you know, I think what you ought to probably do, you might should try this medicine. You should. That's, that's not what I'm trained to do. So I'm not well versed in that area, okay? On the other hand, when you go to the medical professional, it's very possible, in many cases I think probable, that they're not well versed in how to help you spiritually. Okay? Now, some are, uh, many, I've got three children. One of them is in finance, degree in finance, one a degree in law, and one in medicine. So I'm covered for retirement, at least. I got people to take care of me, hopefully. All right. But, uh, and, and so thank God for people of faith who are in the medical field. Thank God for that. But you can't just presume that someone who is a medical expert is necessarily qualified to advise you spiritually. So just as you're going to go to a medical expert for medical advice, you know, when I went to, to the cardiologist, I didn't ask, uh, excuse me, what faith are you? Do you go to church or not? That wasn't my concern. I just want to know, how good a doctor are you? You know, I, 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 honestly, I mean, in, in their own time, if they cuss and drink and smoke and carouse and whatever, that's not my problem. Okay. How good are you in that operating room? That's what I want to know. All right. 
So, but, but by the same token, the opposite, the opposite. So don't expect to, to get your spiritual counseling and cues from the medical professional, even though some may have faith. And so they might try to advise you in the spiritual area. No, save that for the spiritual expert. Go to your pastor for that. Go to your spiritual mentor and, and leader and advice. Okay, so, so make a differentiation there. And that's what 1 Corinthians 2.14 is saying. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. There are some medical professionals that would poo-poo the very statement I just used about demonic oppression and possession. They'd say there's no such thing. Right? But we know, or I know at least, I don't know if you do or not, but I know that there is such a thing. I've traveled the world. I've been in the jungles of the Amazon. I've, I've seen witch doctors. I've, I've, I brought home one of their, one of their sticks. Pray. We baptized some of them. Someone got the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. But uh, I know there is demonic prayer. I've, I've cast devils out of people. I've seen that. I've seen people change. I've seen, and it's, it's, it's not bipolar. You know, it's bipolar to the extreme. All right? It's a spiritual bipolar, okay? And, and, and change from one moment to the next. Into something, somebody loving to somebody hateful and evil and, 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 and forced. I had, I had a young man on staff and he really, he, he, he believed in God and the Bible and he's filled the Holy Ghost, but he really didn't believe in, you know, demonic stuff and all that kind of stuff. He took a trip to a country in Africa with his father. He came back a believer because they met a shaman over there and it made a believer out of him. It made a believer. There's, there's evil spirits in this world. Now, I'm not fearful about that. God hasn't given us the spirit of fear. We got the power of the Holy Ghost, the joy of the Holy Ghost, the peace of the Holy Ghost. I can go to the Amazon jungle. I can go to Pakistan. I, I've, I, can, I can go to the darkest parts of the world, which I have, and, and, and have no fear whatsoever. I'm walking by faith. Praise God. God is my vanguard. Hallelujah. He protects. He helps. Hey, my grandsons this morning were asking me, just this morning, were asking me to retell them a story of how we were stoned by Muslims when we were in, uh, in a small African nation that's a Muslim nation, the first ones to bring the Acts 238 message to that nation, myself and Brother Richardson. And we were stoned. We were stoned with hundreds and hundreds of concrete stones. And yet not one of them injured or hurt or even contacted a body, even though it, sh it destroyed the room that our small group had gathered in to pray, 20 or 30 people, and destroyed every window, destroyed the lights, glass was flying. It was like a bomb went off. And yet miraculously, there's no explanation for that other than a miracle. The, the hand of God, the angels of God just shielded that little group of faith right there. And, and no harm, no harm came to them. The police escorted us out of the country, literally escorted us out of the country. It was a police caravan with motorcycles and police cars in front and back. And we're in a cab with police in our cab and, and we're driving the airport. The policeman said, that's the area right up there you were at last night where you got stoned. And said, oh, can we go get a, one of those stones? Nobody will believe ours. No, we're not going to that area. It's too dangerous. So, oh, man, nobody will believe our story. <laughs> and, and he got on his radio. Rah, 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 rah. <laughs> and the caravan came to a stop. And a couple of motorcycles, poli police took off and went to that. Came back a few minutes later. And I've got one. But Richard's got one. It sits in my office. There is a paperweight and big old craggy concrete piece of stone. And, uh, but I'm telling you what, we, we believe in this stuff. So there's a spiritual component and a spiritual side here. But here's what we need. 1 Corinthians, another verse, 1 Corinthians 12, 10. It says, to another, the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits. We need discernment of spirits. Discernment of spirits. And uh, to discern whether or not there's a spiritual problem or whether there's a mental problem. Now, uh, I don't have time to go through this, but I'm going to give you a resource. I'm going to give you a resource that I'm, I'm not, I just came across this resource. I'm not 
saying all of this is correct or true, but I read through it, and, and I think more of it is correct than not, at least, and I think it could be a good resource. This is produced by the American Psychiatric Association, and you can Google it and find it. I've got it here. It'll come up. It looks like this right here. Here's the opening page. It's a booklet. It's a digital booklet. It looks like that right there. And uh, if you'll Google American Psychiatric Association Mental Health Guide for Faith Leaders. Mental Health Guide for Faith Leaders. American Psychiatric Association Mental Health Guide for Faith Leaders. And it's got some real interesting points, and again, many that I agree with, and I think you'll agree with, and they could be helpful. Um, they don't understand all about the spiritual things, but they kind of acknowledge that, and, and I appreciate that. And they acknowledge faith leaders. I appreciate that. So it ta- I'm just going to summarize here. It talks about the connection between mental and physical conditions. I touched on that a little bit. Um, it says this in this guide, 68% of adults with medical disorders also have medical conditions. 29% of adults with medical conditions also have mental disorders. Interesting. Americans living with serious mental illness die on average many years earlier than other Americans, largely due to treatable medical conditions. And then here's an important part. When to make a referral to a medical health professional. It says often faith leaders are unsure when to refer an individual to a mental health professional. And then it mentions, I think, three situations that, that they recommend immediate referral to a clinical care professional. Number one, when a person poses an immediate danger to themselves or others. <clears throat> when a person poses an immediate danger to themselves or others, refer them to a clinical care professional. Number two, when a person demonstrates an emotional or behavioral problem that constitutes a threat to the safety of the person or of those around him or her, for example, severe aggressive behavior, eating disorder that's out of control, self-mutilization like cutting or other self-destructive behavior. It says immediately refer them to a clinical care professional. Number three, suicide. Thoughts of suicide should always be taken seriously. A person may not share these thoughts with you, but the family members may be aware of something uh, in their, of concern in their behavior like isolation. A person who's seriously suicidal should be considered psychiatric emergency. Immediate psychiatric evaluation consultation should be sought. Uh, then there's a descriptor of mental illness. I'm not going to go into that. That's probably what a lot of your other sessions are dealing with. Then it has a, session, a section on distinguishing religious or spiritual problems from mental illness. And again, they don't fully understand the spiritual side, and they acknowledge that. But in that, they do give some guidelines that I think are worth considering. For example, um, uh, they talk about clinical needs and spiritual concerns are often inextricably intertwined among people of faith. Um, people of faith who have mental health condition may experience distressing spiritual concerns. For example, has God forsaken me? Why doesn't God heal me? Is taking medication evidence of a lack of faith? And they go on describing some. They even mention, I'm reading right from their, their booklet here, they may also express distress in a spiritual term consistent with religious or spiritual problem that's not a mental health condition. For example, prayers not answered, possession by an evil spirit, they mention that in their booklet, anxiety over an unforgivable spirit, and so on. And uh, so there's some good guidelines in this booklet that I do recommend that you read and that you consider. And they also give, I won't have time probably to get to it, but they also give some time frames. For example, they say, if a person's been in depression 
and the depression stretches two weeks and you've not been able to help them, if you've had three sessions over two weeks, you've not been able to help, you probably should refer them to a, a professional clinician. So there's some good guidelines there that we can utilize. I want to key in on one, for the last time that I have, one aspect, because they mentioned this again and again in this booklet. And apparently, I'm taking it that this booklet is it's produced by you know, the American Psychiatric Association. So I'm assuming that they've had many clients come to them expressing these things, and that's why it made its way into their booklet. And one of the things that they cite repetitively is people who come who believe they've committed the unpardonable sin. And that comes up several times in this booklet. So I'm going to use my closing moments here to address that specific issue because God has given me some insight on this. I've used this for a number of years, and, and, it, and it may be new to somebody that could help you or help you to help someone else. So let's talk about that. Unforgivable sin. Unforgivable sin. Let me make this statement. And in fact, this is the answer, and then I'm going to go and, and, and back it up with Scripture. Okay, so here's the answer. answer. The only sin, the only sin that is unforgivable is unforgiveness. The only sin that's unforgivable is unforgiveness. I'm going to prove that to you from Scripture. Now, here's the verse that troubles most people in this area. In Mark 3, 28 and 29, Jesus is speaking. And here's what Jesus said. All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men and blasphemies, whithersoever they shall blaspheme. But he that blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness and is in danger of eternal damnation. That's the verse that hangs people up. They feel like I've blasphemed the Holy Ghost. I can never be helped. I can never be redeemed. I'm forever damned for all eternity. That, that, that trips them up. Okay. Here's the question, though, that they're not considering. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Ghost? And if you ask that person the question, nobody has the answer. They're all going to give you a different answer. How do you know you blaspheme the Holy Ghost? Oh, because, and they'll cite some, I cussed God one time when I was high on drugs or whatever. I, I, I defaced a church one time when I was drunk or whatever, you know. They'll have some, it's all over the board. But what does the Bible say it means to blaspheme the Holy Ghost? Well, the Bible doesn't say, and, and therein lies the problem. There's no verse in the Bible that says, this is what it means to blaspheme the Holy Ghost. So we can still find out what it does mean, but it's not going to be obvious. We have to reverse engineer the, the verse. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to do it. Reverse engineer the verse. Notice here, Rather than focusing on what blasphemy of the Holy Ghost is, look at the results and see what matches these results. What are the results? The results are never forgiven. Never forgiven for all eternity. That's the results. So what is the only thing you can do for which you are never forgiven? Well, we've got to search the Scripture to find that out. Now look at Matthew 6 and 12. Jesus teaching his disciples to pray. He said, pray this way. Forgive us our debts as we. Everybody say, as we. That's the condition, right? As we forgive others their debts. Look at Luke eleven four. It's a restatement of the same thing. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that's indebted to us. So the condition is forgiving others in order to receive forgiveness. Matthew 18, 21. Peter comes and says, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother that sins against me and forgive him seven times? Jesus says in verse 22, 70 times seven. How many times is that? 490 times. 490 times. And then in Matthew 18, the same chapter, the next verse, 23, Jesus tells a story. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like to a certain king 
which would take account to a service, basically tells a story of, of this servant owing a huge debt. He could not repay it. He's brought to the judge. The judge said, I'm going to put you in prison the rest of your life. The man begs and pleads for his life and his family. And, and the judge, for no reason, just has mercy. He just decides to have mercy. Okay, all right, your debt's forgiven. He just has mercy for no reason. He, he lets the guy go. The guy's walking home. He meets a guy that owes him a couple dollars. Now, he's just been forgiven of, like, a lifetime, a billion dollars he can never repay. He's been forgiven of that for no reason. He finds a guy that owes him two bucks, and he says, pay me that two bucks right now. The guy says, I don't have it. And he takes him by the throat, he's choking the life, says, I'm going to beat you to death if you don't give me that two dollars. And, the, and, the, and the, the bailiffs from the court just happened by, like, isn't that the guy that judge just let go? And he's been in prison all his life because he owed, like, a million dollars he can never repay in a whole lifetime. And, and here he's choking this guy to death over two bucks. Yeah, that's him. They haul him back before the judge. Judge, and they tell the judge the story. The judge says, you got to be kidding me. I just forgave you a lifetime of debt. You can never repay it. And now you're going to kill this guy over two bucks? Because of that, I resentenced you. And, 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 I, and now what I forgave you of, you're no longer forgiven of it. And you're going to rot in jail. Jesus tells the story. But here's the kicker, the last verse. It ought to shake us in our boots. It's verse 35 of Matthew 18. Jesus said this, so likewise will my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Jesus tells that story, and then he says, that's exactly how God is going to treat you. He forgives you for no good reason. You don't deserve his forgiveness, but he forgives you completely of a lifetime of sin and wrong and all of that, and, and gives you heaven and then you're going to turn around and not forgive somebody on earth that just treated you wrong once or twice, or even if they treated you wrong 489 times. <laughs> but, but you're not going to forgive them? Jesus said, if that's your attitude, neither are your sins going to be forgiven you. Wow. So the only unforgiven sin, Jesus told us, the only sin that can't be forgiven is unforgiveness. You know, when you share that with some people, it is a liberating thing. How many people are walking into this cloud of, I've committed the unpardonable sin. I'm a, God can never forgive me. I'm a, nobody knows what I've done. My, my preacher doesn't know. Nobody knows what I've done. And, and here you can relieve them. Let me, let me conclude it with this. In Matthew 16, 19, Jesus said, I will give unto thee the, kingdoms of, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What's he saying? He's saying, you control your own destiny here. By the way you forgive others, that's the way God in heaven forgives you. And by the way you don't forgive others, that's the way you're going to be bound in your sins. You control your own destiny. Amen. All right, so let me conclude there. We got 